A warm welcome to the Herdy School. Herdy School. The Herdy School. The Herdy School. Berlin needs a globally visible public policy school. Understand today, shape tomorrow. You're listening to a podcast brought to you by the Herdy School in Berlin. Welcome, everybody. My name is Alexandre Skander Galland. I am the convener of the Fundamental Rights Research Colloquium of the Herdy School. I'm very pleased for the new academic year with a to host a presentation and discussion co-organized with the Max Planck Institute for Social Anthropology Department of Law and Anthropology on Alice Margaria's book, The Construction of Fatherhood, the Jurisprudence of the European Court of Human Rights, published with Cambridge University Press in 2019. We're very honored as well to have Michaela Kreienfeld, professor of sociology of the Erty School, to act as a discussant. The book we are going to Discover today investigates how the European Court of Human Rights is responding to shifting practices and ideas of fatherhood. It explores the court's understanding of what it means to be a father today, whether the father is still understood according to conventional features, or whether what we may be what may be called new fathers are also embraced by the European Court of Human Rights. Alice Margaria, our main panelist, is research fellow at the Max Planck for Social Anthropology, Department of Law and Anthropology. She holds a PhD from the European University Institute, Florence. Her current research interests lie at the intersection of family law, diversity, and human rights. And her project explores, her current project at the Max Planck Institute, as I understand, explores the European Court of Human Rights response to cultural and religious diversity in the context of parent-child relationship through a legal anthropological lens. But today we're here to discuss her book, The Construction of Fatherhood, the Jurisprudence of the European Court of Human Rights. And for those that have, well, all of you have registered, so you have received chapter, a chapter from her book, which uh, invites you uh, to ask questions on this, but also on the presentation uh, that will follow. Um, the discussant for today is Michaela Kreienfeld, professor of sociology at the RT School. Her research focuses on family behavior, life course analysis, social policy, and migration. Until 2016, she led the research group Life Course, Social Policy, and the Family at the Max Planck Institute for Demographic Research in Rostock. Michaela is a member of the Scientific Advisory Board for Family Issues of the German Federal Ministry for Family Affairs senior citizens, women, and youth, and she serves on the expert commission for population projections of the Federal Statistical Office of Germany. So I'm very pleased to chair uh, this uh, colloquium, and I'm thankful to the Max Planck of having co-organized it with us for this book discussion. Now, Alice, if you uh, may turn your camera on and your microphone. Good afternoon, everyone. I would like to start by thanking the Center for Fundamental Rights of Earth School for organizing this event, as well as my own institution, the Max Planck Institute for Social Anthropology, Department of Law and Anthropology, for their generous support. I'm really honored to have the opportunity to open this year's series of Fundamental Rights Research Colloquia and to have the chance to discuss with you some of the main findings of my book. In a nutshell, my book provides the first socio-legal engagement with the definition of fatherhood endorsed by the European Court of Human Rights and reflects on the genesis of this definition. Today's presentation is structured along two questions which resonate with the questions guiding the case law analysis included in the book. The first is, 
what makes someone a legal father according to the court, and the second is what's the role of doctrines of interpretation in shaping the court's definition of fatherhood. Before addressing these two questions, however, I would like to give you a bit of sociolegal context, which will hopefully also clarify some of my reasons for conducting research on this specific topic and for writing this book. In the common imaginary, being a father is often associated with possessing a set of conventional features, which are a biological link with the child, a marriage-based relationship with the child's mother, compliance with heterosexuality and heteronormativity, and breadwinning. Traditionally, this image of the father has penetrated and informed also the legal regulation of fatherhood. Just to give an example, the so-called marital presumption assumes that a child born during a marriage is the biological child of the mother's husband. The coexistence of these features within one and the same individual makes what I term conventional fatherhood. A conventional father is therefore at the same time the biological father of the child, the cisgender heterosexual husband of the child's mother, and the family breadwinner. As you can immediately understand, conventional fatherhood doesn't feature any role for the interest and the involvement of the father in the child's life. In other words, according to this model, paternal care is irrelevant to make someone a legal father. At the same time, sociological literature indicates that contemporary fathers are, at least to some extent, different from those from previous generations. As a result of social change, we're witnessing what has been described as the fragmentation of fatherhood, meaning that what was previously undertaken as a unitary practice, namely conventional fatherhood, is now often split between two or more father figures. This can be the case after separation and divorce, where a child may, in addition to his relationship with his biological father, develop bonds with the mother's new partner. Another frequent scenario of fragmentation is that following assisted reproduction, where a child might, for instance, have a legal and social father who is different from his biological father, namely the sperm donor. Sociologists tell us that contemporary fathers are different also in their relationships with their children. They tend to be more aware of the importance of their presence in the lives of their children, and although statistics confirm that childcare remains primarily the responsibility of mothers, fathers tend to be more involved, or at least willing to be more involved, than in the past. And if we look at the type of complaints brought by fathers before the European Court of Human Rights, it's quite easy to notice that involved or willing to be involved fathers have indeed become frequent applicants, thus further attesting to the changing notions and practices of fatherhood documented by sociologists. So this leads me back to the first question addressed by the book, that is, how is the European Court of Human Rights reacting to and making sense of these changing realities? What makes someone a legal father according to the court? Is the court challenging or reproducing conventional fatherhood? Is paternal care taken into consideration at all by the court? As I argue in the book, the court doesn't totally distance itself from conventional fatherhood. Rather, these conventional features continue to have a bearing on the outcomes of claims brought by fathers. 
Let me give you two examples. The first is the judgment in the case of Menesson versus France, a cross-border surrogacy case, and shows the persisting relevance of biology in making someone a legal father. For those of you who are not familiar with the case, it was brought by a married couple and their twin daughters who were born following a surrogacy agreement in California. When they arrived in France, the authorities refused to recognize their foreign birth certificates, which indicate the couple as their legal parents, on the ground that surrogacy is prohibited under national law as contrary to public order. In 2014, the European Court of Human Rights decided that the domestic failure to recognize the legal parent-child relationship between the applicants violated the children's rights to respect for private life and the importance of granting legal recognition to biological ties formed the cornerstone of the court's reasoning. What did the court say? It started by observing that, following the lack of legal recognition in France, the children were in a position of legal uncertainty, which significantly compromised their right to establish the details of their identity. The court then continued by saying that, and this is exactly the point of the judgment where the court's understanding of fatherhood comes to the fore, this consideration, and now I'm quoting the judgment, takes on a special dimension where, as in the present case, one of the intended parents is also the child's biological parent. Given the importance of biological parentage as a component of identity, it cannot be said to be in the interest of the child to deprive him or her of every legal relationship of this nature. The second example I'd like to share with you today shows instead the often called tenacious hold of marriage. Chapter 4 in particular demonstrates that even in the face of high separation and divorce rates and the proliferation of the factor families, Marriage is not overcome once for all as a ground for granting rights to fathers. When addressing claims brought by unmarried fathers seeking, for instance, contact rights with their biological children after separation, the court continues to place some emphasis on the length and the nature of the relationship from which the child was born, mentioning, for instance, whether it entailed cohabitation with the child's mother, whether there was a joint family project, whether the pregnancy was planned. Marriage, therefore, seems to be merely replaced by pseudo-marital concepts, such as cohabitation, length and stability, and as a consequence, fatherhood continues to be understood as a mediated relationship, as a derivative of the father's relationship with the child's mother. So on the one hand, like these examples show, the court restates the paradigm of conventional fatherhood. At the same time, however, the court has also clarified the limits of these conventional features, showing itself not totally satisfied with conventional fatherhood per se. The case law contains indeed multiple signs of the fact that the court has started to examine the claims of fathers through the additional lens of care. Let me give you two examples. The first is the judgment in Nazarenko versus Russia, 2015, where a divorced father was prevented from applying for contact rights with his daughter after a DNA test showed that he was not her biological father and therefore his parental status was terminated. In this case, the court ruled in favor of the applicant father and literally stated that 
a person like the applicant who had raised the child for five years and had established a close emotional bond with her must not be completely excluded from the child's life based on the lack of a genetic connection. A second example of the weight attached to paternal care by the court is the Grand Chamber's decision in the well-known case of Markin versus Russia, which I analyse in Chapter 5. Here, a military serviceman was denied parental leave allowance, which the material time was reserved to military service women, and according to the Russian Constitutional Court, was justified by the limited participation of women in the army, as well as by the special role of women in relation to motherhood. In its reasoning, the court, in particular the Grand Chamber, started by stressing that men's caring role had gained recognition in both society and national legislation, and therefore concluded that the exclusion of military servicemen from parental living entitlements constituted sex discrimination in breach of Article 8, taken in conjunction with Article 14. So going back to question number one, as I argue in the book, the court's definition of fatherhood includes both change and continuity. In other words, in the court's jurisprudence, the father has been reconstructed as a human being displaying not only conventional features, but also participation in care, or at least caring intentions. This takes us to the second question addressed by the book, that is, what is the genesis of this definition? In other words, what is or are the roles played by doctrines of interpretation in shaping this definition? As you might know, the court has a quite comprehensive and peculiar set of doctrines at its disposal. Many of them are more or less often used in the jurisprudence pertaining to fatherhood. Certainly the margin of appreciation, European consensus, the doctrine of living instrument, the doctrine of positive obligations, just to cite a few each of them, in its own way, has the potential to strengthen or to challenge the status quo, which in this context resonates with conventional fatherhood, by impacting the strictness of the review undertaken by the court. Given that the margin of appreciation is often described as a tool for self-restraint, it seems logical and it is therefore tempting to argue that Whenever the court grants a wide margin of appreciation to the state, the chances that the emerging definition of fatherhood will depart from the conventional paradigm are limited. Similarly, it seems logical to assume that whenever the court applies the living instrument doctrine, it will necessarily end up contesting conventional fatherhood by reading Article 8 in line with present-day fatherhood realities. As I argue in the book, however, the relationship between doctrines of interpretation and the construction of fatherhood is far less linear and predictable. What do I mean by this? I mean that often moral and doctrinal considerations join forces in defining what makes someone a legal father. Let me unpack this by looking at the doctrine of positive obligations as an example. As you might know, as early as in 1979, in the landmark case of Marx versus Belgium, the court interpreted the right to respect for family life as imposing the state's positive obligation to ensure that those concerned can lead a normal family life. 
More concretely, is imposing the obligation to provide legal safeguards that enable the child's integration in the family from the moment of birth. In my book, I observe that this positive obligation hasn't been applied consistently to all types of father-child relationships. In fact, my case law analysis indicates that it is often the applicant's profile as a father and his compliance with the definition of fatherhood endorsed by the court that influences the variable application of, the, of this positive obligation. A clear example of this is a decision in the case of X, Y and Z versus the UK where the UK authorities refused to recognize a trans man as the legal father of his child born to his female partner through donor insemination. Here, the court qualified the ties existing be between the applicant father who had been raising the child since birth and the child himself as family life, but then explicitly departed from its positive obligation approach established in Marx. The court basically said, it's true that in previous cases, when family life was found, I considered the state to be under the positive obligation to introduce legal safeguards to enable the child's integration in the family from the moment of birth. This case, however, the court says literally, raises different issues because the child was conceived through donor insemination and is not biological related to the father, who is a transsexual using the court's language at that time. So this is one of the cases that I identify in my book where the doctrine of positive obligations plays what Paul Johnson calls a subservient role. In other words, it is used to support and to legitimize the court's moral position on fatherhood and therefore the emerging definition of fatherhood appears to be more a matter of choice than the product of a consistent application of the doctrine. However, this shouldn't be taken as implying that the court generally lacks attention to doctrinal consistency, not at all. Actually, the case law on family work reconciliation included in Chapter 5 shows the contrary. There, I observe the court's shift from the image of the father as a mere breadwinner to a new image that includes care. And as I argue in the book, this shift is the result of the progressive establishment of a European consensus on extending parental leave entitlements to fathers, consensus which was not there 30-40 years ago when the court decided its first case on the issue Petrovich versus Austria, but emerged in 2012 when the Grand Chamber decided Markin versus Russia. So in this context, the reconstruction of fatherhood, apart from being presented as such in the text of the judgments, is the product of the court's accurate application of European consensus and of the doctrinal path that followed. Meaning, the existence of a European consensus meant a narrow margin of appreciation, which in turn triggered a strict review of proportionality and eventually led to the finding of a violation with the ultimate outcome of contesting the conventional paradigm and adding care to the definition of fatherhood. So, as these examples suggest, and to address question number two, there is not only one type of relationship between the court's definition of fatherhood and doctrines of interpretation. There are two extreme patterns where doctrines can either be productive of or be subservient to the court's construction of fatherhood, and in between, many other ways in which moral and doctrinal considerations interact, and in so doing, shape the court's construction of fatherhood. 
This brings me to the very conclusion of my presentation. In a nutshell, the main contributions of my book can be summarized in two points. First, the course, possibly inadvertently, has engaged in topical conversations about parenting, gender and care by endorsing a definition that doesn't abandon conventional fatherhood but simply enriches it with care. This definition very well captures what some sociologists have referred to as fatherhood in transition, in the sense that it reflects a change that is just in the making also in society. Second, the relationship between doctrines of interpretation and the court's construction of fatherhood is much more intricate than one would initially expect. Even if the court has generally tried not to be perceived as passing moral judgments, the emerging construction of fatherhood is often the result of both the doctrinal path undertaken by the court and the court's moral views on fatherhood. Thank you very much for your attention. Thank you very much, Alice. So these are very important and interesting findings. Now I'm looking forward to uh, Michaela Krejenfeld, professor of sociology, to give her, her take on, on the book and the findings that you, you advance in it. Thank you very much, Skandat. Can you hear me? Yes. Perfect. Uh, thanks, you. And can you also see my slides? Yes, we can. Perfect. Then I start. So, dear colleagues, the Alice, it is my great honor for me to comment on the book, The Construction of Fatherhood. I will comment on the book from my disciplinary perspective. My background is that of a family sociologist. Family sociologists, they have a very simplified perception of family law. Maybe, namely, they believe that family law is often like a lame horse. This is so because we know from our data that family behavior is changing, that family structures have become more diverse. However, family law is unable to catch up with these developments. Recently, however, there is a new discussion also among the family sociologists. There is a debate that this lame horse could eventually mutate into a wild racing horse. And this wild racing horse runs ahead and defines societal change change. And this discussion was particularly prevalent when we introduced the so-called daddy months in the parental leave system, but it is also very pertinent in the discussion on shared legal and phys physical custody after divorce and separation. So does the legal context respond adequately to societal change or does it even define societal change? And these are the question that Alice uh, addresses in her book, she casts a very nuanced light on these questions by focusing on the image of fatherhood that is adopted by the Court of Human Rights. I must admit myself that my work mostly is concerned with national family law. European family law has been, to be really honest, absent from my radar. If at all, I perceive Europe or the European Court of Human Rights as a motor of change. It is pushing this lame horse to move forward and keep track with societal development. For example, in the case of Germany, uh, there's been the case with German family law where the European Court has prompted the national government to reconsider the rights to legal custody of unmarried fathers. 
So this was my perception. perception. However, after I read Alice's book, I realized that my view is rather naive. The book provides a much more ambivalent perspective on the European Court of Human Rights. So what is the content of the book? What is new and what is possibly controversial? So Alice illustrates that the court is not the anonymous motor of change. Actually, it's quite the opposite. The court is rather volatile and it can lean to a more traditional or to a more progressive interpretation of fatherhood. And in order to unravel the court's, I would say, tendencies, Alice employs a careful scrutiny of case law. More precisely, she always compares two or three cases that differ with only in only one dimension. And this dimension could be the marital status of the father, it could be his sexual orientation, or it could be the contact of the father and the child. And translated into my own language, the method Alice is conducting here is the most similar design. By varying only one parameter, she generates the evidence. Alice, she takes us through various areas of family law, post-separation fatherhood, fatherhood of same-sex union, fatherhood of transgender, parent surrogacy, and other areas of assisted reproduction. And the benchmark is always, always the image of the traditional father. It is genetic, heterosexual, and marital. In Alice's words, marriage has been the vehicle in the past to connect men to fathers. Men and their children, not to fathers. Fathers to their children. Uh, men and, and children. The court has a, clearly a sympathy for this image of fatherhood. However, the vehicle marriage does no longer work as a result of increases in non-marital childbearing, divorce and separation, as well as assisted reproductive production technologies. The court inevitably, it has to deal with a fragmented fatherhood where genetic marital and social fatherhood do not overlap. And what is most important, Alice illustrates that the court is abide in a very hesitant way adopts a constructivist viewpoint. A father is a father because he cares, because he acts as a fa father. Doing fatherhood would be the sociological equivalent for this interpretation of fatherhood. Fatherhood is constructed in everyday interaction. However, when does the court adopt a more progressive viewpoint and under which conditions is it more traditional? Alice explains this mechanisms already in chapter two of her book, and this chapter was for me the hardest, but also the most fascinating one. It explains the complex relationship that exists between the court and the national context. In legal terms, there is this margin of appreciation. In my plain sociological translated terminology, the I would translate it that the court can turn a blind eye on certain developments by simply referring to the country's peculiarities. Alice argues that this margin of appreciation can easily trump all other arguments. It can free the court from providing a careful argumentation why the court is interpreted a uh, convention is interpreted in a certain way and not in another. Furthermore, the court it can hide its own traditional moral standpoint by referring to a country's social cultural milieu. It simply delegates the decision to the national authorities who are assumed to be more experienced with the tradition, culture, religion, and morality in the respective country. As a family sociologist, I would certainly 
agree that behavior and family attitudes are specific and diverse across European countries. This pertains to all areas of family behavior, non marital childbearing, divorce, separation, paternal employment. However, the diversity across Europe is probably much smaller than the diversity that exists within a country. As a result of migration and other demographic processes, societies are getting more heterogeneous every year. So from my disciplinary standpoint, a country's particularity or in the European context is not a good argument um, in contemporary Europe to evade a moral standpoint. So this is my first point. Furthermore, or my first takeaway from, uh, from Alice's book. Furthermore, there's also the question of the hen and the egg. Is European family behavior so heterogeneous because we have such heterogeneous family policies or do the national family policies enforce the national particularities? Do they lock the countries into their past dependencies? In this case, if this applies, we're in a vicious circle where the, the court, only the court has the power to make a difference and overcome the national gridlock. However, by their inaction, they implicitly accept the fragmented legal framework that exists in Europe. It's not only the fragmentation of fatherhood that the court is grappling with, in my view. Um, the fragmentation of fatherhood is, stands more broadly for the fr fragmentation of family policies and family law that exists in Europe. The court could, in my, from my perspective at least, take a more progressive role here. This seems not only sensible because family behavior does not stop at national borders, furthermore it seems imperative because no other area is so diverse as family law, European family law. To conclude, Alice's book was for me a clear enlightenment. It corrected my naive and possibly too positive view on the European Court of Human Rights. The careful case law studies that are presented in this book are not only very exciting to read, they are also illustrate how law works in action. I quote from the foreword of this book, it will appeal to a wide readership across disciplines. I'm not a lawyer and could not agree more with his statement. This book makes the practice of the European Court of Human Rights transparent to a wider audience. More specifically, it provides a very detailed account of the legal meaning of fatherhood. Congratulations to Alice to this achievement. Wow, thank you. Thank you so much, Michaela, for this uh, very generous uh, comment and discussion that was very engaging. Thank you also. Uh, very much to Alice for uh, presenting her findings and um, now I'd like to invite uh, the audience to, to participate to the debate. Thanks for listening. You can find more on our website at herdy-school.org.